Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brayman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Roman Basie of the Center for Financial, Legal, and Tax Planning. Now, Roman has a bio that I could spend 10 minutes reading, but I'm not going to for time's sake, but he's what I like to call a unicorn. He's a CPA and a tax attorney. He is the best of both worlds, and he is definitely not normal. So today we're going to talk about all the different ways that using someone like Roman and his skill set can help you exit your business. Roman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ross. Really appreciate it. So, like I said, you're a unicorn. So there's a few of you guys out there. There's not a lot, but talk a little bit about what someone like you who is a CPA and a tax attorney does, the skill set you bring to the table, and why someone who owns a business really should consider talking with someone like you. Well, you know, here's the deal, and especially with the term unicorn, that's great because I've always told people, I really feel like we are a one-stop shop. Besides a brokering piece of exit planning or succession planning um, and a financial planner, we are very much a one-stop shop with our skill set and with what we've done and what we bring to the table for exit planning or succession planning. Being an attorney, CPA, real estate broker, and title insurance agent, Though that's the skill set that you need when you're looking at a business, trying to decide how is this owner going to plan for the next generation to take over or to sell the company or to transfer it to key employees. You look at what are you looking at when you're looking at a business like that? You're looking at its legalities, its legal structure, its legal liabilities. What's it got going on out there? It's taxation. What taxes is an owner going to be impacted by? when they transfer the company or sell the company. We're also looking at their accounting records. What are they doing? How are they filing their taxes? What structure of corporation do they have? Where's the real estate? Is it in the company? Is it out of the company? Are they leasing it? Do they want to sell it? Do they want to keep it? Do they want to go? How do they want to, again, structure their succession to minimize the taxation of the real estate part of the transaction if the business has a piece of real estate? So, all of my licenses and all of our the the credibility that we have comes into play when we're helping an owner transfer their business. The real key too is our size. I specialize in small privately held companies all across the U.S. I'm not doing mergers of Verizon merging with AT&T. No, I'm doing the mom and pop equipment rental store down the road that's being bought out by a competitor. Or we do get into some larger deals. There might be private equity groups buying our companies. But again, the companies I generally represent are what we call small, privately held businesses. In the United States, in the United States, a small business is anything that has 50 million or less in assets. That's a very key term when we are doing things like this, because there are a lot of ramifications to the term small business. So that's how we portray a small business in the U.S. And that's the kind of companies I represent. So when you say 50 million or less in assets, 
So let's clarify that for listeners. What is, oh, let's go on the high end. What's the revenue for a company like this on the high end typically? Oh, I mean, it, it can be really be up there. But again, any we, we see companies with revenue of 30, 40, 50 million dollars still be considered qualified small businesses. And our general business that I represent across the country, they may be doing a couple million dollars a year in revenue. That's the average size of what I see. Anywhere from you know one to five million in revenue is a very typical clientele for me. And we sell businesses anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars all the way to I'm working on a $55 million deal right now as we do the podcast today. So I'll sell businesses all within that realm. And that's about your average sizes, a couple million dollars of revenue and values of a couple hundred thousand to 10, $20 million. It's a very general average size. And this is 50 million and less. That is what, 90, 95% of the businesses out there? Absolutely. And there's so many tax code advantages to utilize for companies like that when we are creating these plans. So let's talk about the mistakes you see people make, because if someone's not working with you or someone like you, and there's not many people like you out there, they are leaving money on the table. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I'm going to use one that I worked on this morning and they are an equipment company. I don't want to identify the type of equipment because there's not very many of them in the U.S., but this owner meets with a potential buyer uh, about a month ago and immediately is ready to share information and immediately ready to share financial information. That is the number one mistake a business owner can make when talking about planning, succession planning, transactional planning is sharing financial information that is inaccurate, that has not been reviewed, that has not been what we call recasted. We can get into that later if we want to. But the number one mistake we have is where your financial information is not accurate. It's not correct. It's not up to date. And that has to be the most primary factor going into conversations like this is what do the financials look like for the business? And are they accurate? Have they, are they reflective of the current state of the business? And have we worked on them? Have we recasted them? And we can explain that later if we need to. Well, for all, I mean, basically you need to have your books audited before you go to market, correct? Essentially, you need to have them reviewed and and to say to somebody, look, what in the last three years or five years, depending upon what we're doing, or even one year, depending upon what planning we're doing, what is in those financial statements that was a one-time piece of income or a one-time expense what is in those financial statements that or is not necessary? run through the business you need to pull out. Not necessary to run the business. Seller discretionary expenses. And if a business owner is looking at financials and making their plan based on their raw financial data, they are missing out on value. They are costing themselves additional taxes. And there's a whole host of other problems that go along with that. That's why we want that information to be correct first, and we want to keep it correct throughout the entire plan. Okay, so I got a, a couple of questions here. Actually, I've got like a million in my head, but I've got to sort them out. So lots of business owners, in my experience, 
you know, the light bulb goes off or the straw breaks the camel's back and they're like, I want to sell. And this happens on a Monday. And if it was up to them, they'd have an LOI on Friday. And if they don't, they end up, you know, having one within 60 or 90 or 180 days. But ideally, if you want to sell, in my experience, you need to plan. And that plan to maximize value can take up to three to five years. Do you see that a lot as well? Oh, we see exactly what you described is 99% of our clients will come to us. They already have a letter of intent signed and in the back, ready to go. And we love to be involved three to five years out or, or working on those financial matters, legal matters, whatever it may be, so that when you are ready to initiate the plan or go to the market, you're ready. You've got three years of clean financials. You know what you're prepping for in terms of what you expect from the sale of a business. So you're you're not going to be delayed. In a case where you don't do any of that, you say, oh, Roman, I decided to sell my business and we got three letters of intent coming in. We want to engage you. Now, what do you do? Well, now we've got to look at what's the value of the company? Are you getting accurate value? What's the tax impact? Have we done a tax analysis yet? Have we done what we call a tax minimization analysis? Are your financial records complete and ready? Have you shared them with the buyer yet? What has a buyer or the successional party seen from you? So these are all things that all of a sudden now you're rushed to do them because you didn't plan in advance for this. So it's my argument that uh, most people pay more taxes than they have to on a transaction of a sale of a business or a highly appreciated asset. There are a lot of really strategic uh, planning opportunities. But if I'm selling my business and I've accepted an LOI and then I call you, does that limit what you can do from a tax planning standpoint? Maybe a tiny bit. We have some limitations with potential negotiations depending upon what's in the LOI. What we always like to do first, we love it. It's called our tax minimization analysis. And this is what I tell clients when they're on the phone with me for the first time, they haven't engaged me yet. And we're giving them a free introductory call saying, hey, this is what we would do. And I want to share this with you today because this is what their professionals should be doing for them. I share this with you as education, not as a sales pitch. But we start every deal, even if it's after the LOI, with a tax minimization analysis. And what that is, is it's a waterfall of the entire transaction starting with what we think the selling price is. Because you may say, well, I'm going to have a $10 million offer and I have a $12 million offer. I want to take the $12 million offer. Well, if the $12 million offer, if that structure is not advantageous to the seller for tax purposes, it may not be as good of an offer as the $10 million offer. So the tax minimization analysis, we call it our TMA, it shows us this. And we start with the selling price or the value. If we don't have an LOI, Maybe we know what the listing price is, or we know what the valuation price is. Or again, this works if you're going to transfer the company internally. We look at all the expenses of the sale first, brokers, commissions, lawyers, accountants, real estate people, whatever else you may have involved. Now we have the net selling price. Now we decide what is the best structure to sell the company. Is it going to be an asset sale? Is it going to be a stock sale? Is it going to be a hybrid sale? So if you've already got an LOI on the table, I'm limited a little bit right there, right? I may not be able to structure it a couple of different ways, 
because you've already accepted an asset sale or a stock sale or a hybrid of them. But either way, we create the best structure within that tax analysis. Now we know what the taxes are going to be on the sale. We're not done. Now we say, okay, we have to pay off our liabilities. Payment of liabilities is not deductible in a transaction. Most sellers don't understand that. They'll look at their balance sheet and say, well, I got a $3 million you know, liability on my balance sheet. I got to pay that off. So I don't have to pay taxes on that. And that's not true. That's not part of the taxational part of the, of the structure. So once we've got the liabilities paid off, now we have our net cash number, but we're still not done. Is there a working capital adjustment? Is there an employment agreement? Consulting agreement? Non-compete? Is there an earnout? Purchase price adjustment? All of these things have a tax impact. So we keep to, we keep showing you that in the waterfall. And we finally get down to the final number of this is what you're going to walk away with if the deal is structured to its maximum capacity. And these are the taxes that you are going to pay. And then most sellers will tell us, then I need to know from the seller, what do you want to do with the proceeds when your deal is done? Because that has a tax impact. Do you want to do a charitable remainder trust? Do you want to invest the money in a qualified opportunity zone? Do you want to do a deferred sales trust? What do you want to do with the proceeds? Because there are, there are post-closing matters that have tax effects and we can still limit your taxation. Here's another example. I had a gentleman in Chicago. We sold his landscaping company recently and he had a lot of capital gain from the sale of his business. And when the deal was over, he asked me a great question. He said, Roman, the stock market's down. Can I sell some of my stocks and recognize my capital loss and offset these capital gains from the sale of my business? And I said, absolutely, you should be doing that. And that's not even a question I asked him. And that's a post-closing action that had a monster impact because he had $6 million of personal capital gain on the deal. I don't know how much he was able to, to eliminate, but by recognizing the stock and selling it at a loss now, he was able to offset that capital gain. If you're offsetting 20% capital gain, keep in mind, he was an S corporation, so he doesn't pay the 3.8% net investment income tax. But if he's able to offset 20% capital gain because the stocks are selling at a loss, that's a hell of a personal gain to him. So we look at what are you going to do after the deal because it can save additional taxes. So let's go back to the asset and stocks uh, sale and the difference of the taxation, because I think a lot of people, quite frankly, are ignorant of the difference. They're like, well, I'm selling my business for $10 million. You know, I'm not a C corporation. I'm not a publicly traded company. So it's not a stock sale. And I got a bunch of assets, asset sale. And so they don't realize the differences in taxation and how one might be more advantageous to the buyer than the seller. So kind of walk through that, if you would. You know, and look, if, if it's an educated business owner listening today, you've educated yourself about your business. So educate yourself about selling your company when you, or transferring it when you decide to do that. You know, there, it's not always advantageous to sell the, the assets of the business or the stock. A typical CPA is going to look at the business owner and say, you have to sell your stock, not your assets, because stock is going to be most likely capital gain to the owner, long-term capital gain if they've held the business for more than one year. But it may not be advantageous to sell the stock of a company if an owner has no basis. If an owner has no tax basis in the stock, 
They're paying tax on every single dollar of the sale of the company. If it's an asset sale and the owner has basis in the assets, meaning they haven't depreciated their assets down to zero, some of that basis can be used when we sell the company's assets and an owner doesn't pay tax on that. So we have to know what the tax effects of the different structures are before we make that decision. And so many business owners call us and say, well, my CPA said I have to sell the stock because it's capital gain. If I sell my assets, I'm going to have a lot of ordinary income. I promise you sitting here, that is not the truth 99% of the time because there are so many structures that we can employ to minimize the taxation of a company regardless of how we sell it. Yeah, that's interesting. So something I've come across is, you know, there are strategies out there, are numerous strategies. Some of them get marketed and, you know, somebody goes to a seminar, they learn about this one strategy and next thing you know, they're basically a promoter that this one strategy is a solution to all your problems. And they're like a hammer and everything is a nail. And you see certain strategies and I'm sure you and I could both name them, but we won't forsake this podcast. And every sale is XYZ strategy, no matter what. And, you know, in my experience, you know, that particular strategy might make sense, but maybe layered with a couple other strategies. When you come across, you know, the flavor of the month uh, strategy and someone's talking to you about that and they want to do a $10 million sale, they want to do every dime of it in this strategy, not realizing they probably don't understand it fully. What do you say to that? And, And what's your perspective on it? You know, I always draw these answers from my experience. So the very first thing I say when you bring me a strategy to sell your company is let's look at the pros and cons of it. I'm here to advise you. And I, I act as an insurance policy for the, for the clients that I represent. I'm not going to promote a strategy that I cannot defend in front of the IRS with an audit. And I don't sell products. I sell my advice and I sell my service. And I will tell you when you present me with a strategy, Let's look at it every single time. Let's look at it. What are the pros to you if you go with this strategy? What are the cons? What are the risks? Where's the money being invested? Where's the money being held? Uh, What liabilities are you assuming if you take on this strategy? And that's what you need to know as a business owner. If you think, oh, I've heard about this, Roman. Somebody called me. They wanted to help me sell my company. They think I should use this strategy. Have your professionals analyze the strategy. Don't just have them sit there and say, oh, it's junk. Don't do it. Why is it out there? What's it supposed to be doing? And what are the risks that you're taking on if you if you go forward with it? That's what I do. I analyze every one of them. And typically speaking, you know, to use my example of a $10 million strategy, obviously, you know, if it's a, it's a $500,000 sale, you're not going to layer multiple different strategies. But if it's a $10 million sale or larger, are you typically layering multiple strategies if it makes sense or is it just you know we're doing one strategy no that's a great question because we do we layer the strategies you know let's just say we've got a c corporation and we say okay look one strategy we're going to use the c corporation i'm doing one right now actually this actually in about an hour i have a phone call on a car dealership about a five six million dollar transaction they're a c corporation so we've got to do some layering of some strategies We're going to use potentially personal goodwill. That's going to avoid some of the double taxation to the C-corporation. 
We're going to use some other things within that transaction. Again, post-closing, what else can we do? 1031 exchange on their real estate. Potentially, they're talking about selling their real estate. So let's do a 1031 on the real estate. Let's defer that taxation. So now we've got to decide how many strategies we want to use and how much we want to account uh, allocate to each strategy. Do I want more going to the real estate because I'm just deferring the tax? Or do I want more going to the personal goodwill because I'm eliminating the double taxation? So now we've got to know which ones we want to use and how much we want to allocate to those. We also may look at with the C corporation, just throwing some examples out there so that your listeners know there's, there's more ways than one to do this. Are you qualified small business stock? Are you a C corporation? Did you get your stock initially from the company after 1993? Now you fall into what's called the qualified small, qualified small business stock rules. And depending upon when you got your stock, and if and when we sell the company, you may be able to sell the company tax-free. This or is a lottery ticket strategy. It's a very yeah. niche. It's very niche, but it's we a lottery it. ticket. Love it, man. When I And depending upon when you got your stock, you may fall into a 50% bucket where we can sell the company and you only pay tax on 50% of the gain. And this strategy eliminates gain on the sale of a company. So one thing we've been doing with this, when we talk about this as a whole is, if you're three to five years out and you're looking at doing some planning, this is one thing we are looking at. Should you have a C corporation or are you a C corporation? Should you be qualified small business stock? You have to hold that stock for five years. Once you're past the five-year mark, now we're in the window. And now we can eliminate some of the gain of the sale of the stock of the company. So these are layering of strategies that we use when we are selling business. And look, Probably the most complex one that we layer with, well, one of the more complex ones is what we call a 338H10. That's the hybrid where we are selling the stock of the company, but the buyer is getting asset treatment. It's as if the buyer bought the assets, but the buyer bought the stock. That is one of the more layering elements of a transaction that we do. So absolutely, the answer is I would say nine times out of 10, we are using more than one strategy in a transaction, especially of that size. Now you're right. You do a $500,000 deal. No. Is it worth the effort and the expense of somebody like me to come in there and do a multi-layer strategy? No. We're going to sell that company. We're going to minimize your taxes as much as possible. And we're going to get out of there for you. So let's kind of take a little bit of a pivot here. We're talking about exit planning and you're a CPA and a tax attorney. But if I'm a business owner, I'm listening to this and I make a couple million bucks a year and you know, I'm going to sell my business one day, but I'm not selling it tomorrow. But, you know, I'm paying a nice chunk of change to the IRS and all the all my CPA is telling me to do is put more money in a qualified plan. Talk a little about the tax planning you do for clients just from an income tax standpoint, if they're not selling their business. It, right. And think about the words exit plan. What is a plan? A plan should be a written set of recommended steps for you to take going forward with your business. That's what one of the things that we do. I write succession plans or strategic plans step by step. I tell you what to do with your business. Do you have a piece of real estate? And this goes to the taxation and this goes to the running of the business for the next three to five years and a potential exit or succession plan on the back end. Let's, let's do an example. 
Do you have a piece of real estate? How is that real estate owned? A lot of business owners will tell me, well, I own it personally. So in the exit and succession plan, I will give you the steps. We want to form an LLC. We want to do articles of organization. We want to have an operating agreement. We want to have minutes. We want to have a deed where we actually transfer the real estate into the LLC. Now we want the company to have a lease with your LLC, renting the property from the LLC. Now we're creating tax benefits to the corporation, lowering its taxable income, getting that taxable income out of a company, getting it over into an LLC where we can depreciate it, take maintenance expenses. We have gained the rental expense. This is stuff that we put in to a written exit plan or strategic plan, which is done to minimize the taxes of the company on an operational daily basis. And it's also a plan for you to get out of your company and however long you want to stay in there and have these effects in the plan. Then the owners can go through our plan and say, well, Roman, I want to do number one, six, nine, and 10. Let's save the rest for later. So that's, to me, what an exit plan is and how we look at what the company is doing to save income taxes for the next couple of years. Yeah. I like to say that any dollar taken back from the IRS legally is the highest rate of return you're ever going to receive. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we do since 2017, since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, is if you're a flow-through entity, again, if I'm looking at an exit plan and you're a flow-through entity, should you remain a flow-through entity or should you switch to a C-corporation, which has a flat 21% tax rate? Are you in a tax rate, tax bracket of 37% as an individual right now? And you have a flow-through entity and any profit going to you from your flow-through entity is being taxed at the highest tax rate. Should you convert to a C-corporation at 21%, saving X amount of taxes during the year and potentially prepping us to be qualified small business stock in five years? These are the things that, right, every dollar we've taken off the table to the IRS is a dollar gained for us, and we're setting you up for a better future. Talk a little bit about, and I know you have personal experience with this, talk a little about moving to a low-tax state as part of a business exit plan. I love it. I love the question. I'm sitting here in my Florida office today. so We're both in Florida because we both appreciate a low-tax state. That's right. We, we love Florida with the 0% income tax here. Uh, you know, it's a strategy that a lot of business owners are, are utilizing, uh, even in even in stock sales or, or whatever the sale or the transfer may be. And you've got to plan for that. You can't do that at the moment of transfer or the moment of sale. You know, you should be at least a year out when you are making a residency move to a low income state. A lot of California owners are moving to Arizona, moving to Florida. We have Illinois, where I where I came from, moving out of that income tax state, coming down to Florida with a 0% income tax state. You know, my dad did it. I've worked with my dad now for 25 and a half years straight. We've worked side by side. And about 20 years ago, he made the move to Florida from Illinois. At that time, you got to watch your state laws. At that time, Florida had an intangibles tax. So if you own stock in a company and you moved to the state of Florida, you still had some, you still had taxation that you didn't want. So what my father did was transfer all of the ownership of our companies to my mother. He left her as a resident in Illinois. He took residency in Florida. Legitimately, they had two residences and they split time between their residences appropriately. 
So he had no income tax and we paid no intangibles tax. Now, eventually, Florida dropped the intangibles tax. So now we have a lot of people moving to Florida, a lot, almost, what, 800, 900 a day still, to avoid these income stakes. But be careful, folks. The income states will audit you. I'm involved right now with a client in Illinois being audited by Illinois because he's a Florida resident. You've got to make sure you do what the states tell you to do. Florida says, file a declaration of domicile. Most states have that document. That's a document you fill out and say, I am a resident of this state. Sign it, notarize it, and you record it in your courthouse. It is called a declaration of domicile. Then, of course, we want you to get a driver's license. We want you to have a vehicle in that state, a home or a lease. There's a lot of voting registration. There's so much more that goes along with it. Now you've accomplished it, and now you can get the tax benefits of it. Now, I sit here, and I have a couple different companies. I have a law firm, accounting firm, and I have a real estate company. My law firm and my accounting firm, I can take all my salary in Florida. My profits are a little different. Are they being generated in Illinois? Because that's where my corporate headquarters are. But I can take my salary. I'm working here in my Florida office, and I can take my salary here, and I pay no income tax on my salary. So you can imagine how much profit I can remove from the company and not pay tax on it at a state level. But when you're real estate, I have multifamily real estate, a lot of in Illinois. Most of it is in Illinois. So my tax return for that company is based in Illinois. And we will report Illinois profit for that company because that's where that income is being generated. But think about this. I can also consult to my Illinois company while I'm working here in Florida. And I can do the same thing. I can take payroll salary bonuses from my real estate company in my Florida office where I am running the company from. So you would probably take a higher salary, even though that would expose you to more payroll tax, because you don't want to take a distribution because that would be uh, subject to Illinois income tax. That's right. And you've got to make those, you've got to make those analyses. How much payroll should I take? How much profit should we leave in the company? Those are the analyses that need to be made during the year. I, I oftentimes have a conference call with my clients once a quarter. And we look at what have they done the last quarter? What adjustment do they need to make? So that by the end of the year, they are ready to file that tax return and minimize their taxes. Well, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about income tax planning. Even if you're not selling your business, income tax planning to use legitimate legal strategies to mitigate your taxes whatever that might be. So like, for example, if you own a multifamily property, you know, it might be a cost segregation. You know, I've heard some CPAs say, no, you can't do a cost segregation because of X, Y, or Z, which I knew for a fact wasn't a legitimate thing. Obviously, everything's a case by case basis, but there's a lot of limit. There's a lot of strategies that, quite frankly, some CPAs are just lazy about in my in my experience. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, because most CPAs are trained for tax return work, filing tax returns, and they will do that nowadays all year long. It used to be where, you know, we were busy the first three and a half months of the year. Well, it's not that way anymore. I mean, our, our accounting staff, we file tax returns. We do a couple thousand tax returns a year, and they file returns all year long. That work never stops. So that's where the expertise comes in of, do you have a financial planning CPA or someone like myself, a tax attorney? I'm an attorney and a CPA. 
My focus is not on tax return work. The only tax return I file, I hardly even file my own. But if I work on one, it's my own because my days are spent with companies doing the financial planning during the year, doing the income tax planning during the year, helping transfer the businesses during the year. That's the kind of advisor a business needs when they're looking at, well, how do I reduce my income taxes? Don't wait until the end of the year and your CPA tells you in late December, go buy a vehicle, go invest in some equipment, go do this, go do that. That's the worst planning because you waited all year to do something. And now you have to make rush decisions to have a tax impact. And don't spend a dollar to save 37 cents. Buy something, a piece of equipment, if you actually need it, and you'll get a rate of return on it. That's right, because there's so many more things we can do when we're looking at your financial statements during the year to save you money, as opposed to, like you like said, wasting at the very end of the year, wasting it on equipment that you don't need. Yeah. So, Roman, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you do or if they want to engage you? Our website is easy. It's taxplanning.com. We're also on Facebook. If they want to get in touch with us, the very easiest thing is to shoot me an email. My email is rbasi at taxplanning.com. We set you up as soon as you reach out to us. We set you up with an introductory phone call. Often, most often, I am on the phone call with you. There's no charge whatsoever. We like you to send us whatever documentation you can send us in advance, tax returns, financial statements, information on the company. It's all confidential. We'll have a phone call with you at no charge. That call usually is 30 minutes to an hour telling you what we're seeing, where we think we can help. And then we'll follow that up with an email with a quote for our services. It's not a sales pitch. We're here to educate you when we have you on the phone. And if you want to work with us, we'll tell you how we can help you. And if you don't, that's fine. You go off on your merry way. But that's the way to that's the way to reach us. And that's how we work with every client. By the way, home run on the domain, taxplan.com. Man, I, you could sell that for a lot of money. I am one of six children, and I will give massive props to my oldest brother, who shares the name with my father, Bart. Uh, He got us that website back in the 1990s, before people even knew the internet existed. So we have had that website ever since. And you're right. If all else fails, that is my insurance policy. (laughs) and And I promised my brother, and now he has it on a podcast that I will give him some of the money someday if we ever sell the domain. And he knows that. <laughs> well, I highly doubt you'll ever sell it, but uh, that's fantastic. Well, Roman, I really appreciate you coming on today. This has been a very knowledgeable and insightful podcast. I appreciate your time. And Ross, I really appreciate appreciate you having me on here. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brandon. This podcast is intended for general public use and for informational purposes only. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and our financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian or North Florida Financial and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents and employees 
employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian, North Florida Financial's non-affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number 0L10073. 2023-149008. Expires 125.